Good evening, and welcome everybody to tonight, the second class of Angels, and Dem Angels Demons, and Magic. So interesting idea. The best-selling book in the world every single year for a very, very long time has been the Bible. Who would have thought? However, interestingly enough, in the next top five slots, well, the second or third slot is the book Harry Potter, along with a few other supernatural books, or I should say books of the supernatural. Not to compare the two at all when it comes to the Bible, which is the truth, the best-selling truth. But these other books that are sold about the supernatural just shows how interested people actually are when it comes to the supernatural. People love to go to that world. It either makes them feel more at ease that maybe there is something out there. Maybe there is some kind of hope or they hope and they wish that they had these superpowers themselves and it kind of makes them feel more comfortable with some kind of control or the like. Now, just a short recap of last class and what's relevant to tonight. We discussed the whole concept of angels and demons, and we came to a conclusion that there is a truth to the concept of angels and demons, and it is a part of our tradition, a part of our faith and belief. And we quoted a fascinating Maharal, Rabbi Yudalowi of Prague, 1600s, about the concept of a demon not being a direct product of creation, but rather a result and a consequence of creation. We will explore that concept a little bit tonight as well. So just an introduction to what we're about to do. We're going to explore the idea of the world of witchcraft, magic, and sorcery. In the end, we'll, we will wrap everything up, how last class and this class are truly connected, and what it really means to us in a practical and real way. Now, just a disclaimer that this is a very difficult topic. There are many different approaches to it within Judaism itself. Tonight, we are going to take a particular approach of the truth of magic, the truth of the world of the occult, the spiritual world that so many are trying to tap into. Now, when we use the term magic, generally speaking, it's a, it's a term which just refers to the power of influencing the course of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces. A lot of times you say, oh, that was, you know, that this person works their magic. It doesn't mean anything supernatural in any way, shape, or form. It just means they're pretty good at doing something. They have a way of being able to always get the right result. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything supernatural going on. But obviously we're going to be exploring the world of the supernatural tonight. Now let's just jump right into it. Does the Torah recognize magic and witchcraft or not? So the simplest approach is 100% yes. Look at the fact that the Torah itself says that you should not go in the abominable way of the, or the disgusting ways of the nations around you who are steeped in witchcraft. And the Torah itself lists several of these different types of witchcrafts and magic which we will be discussing a few of them a little bit later on tonight. In addition, the Torah tells us, that when it comes to a witch or somebody who practices witchcraft, 
we are not allowed to let them live because of the negativity that they bring to the world, as we will discuss what the, issue, what the issues might be. As well, we find that when Moshe Rabbeinu performs miracles in Egypt, when he turns his snake into a serpent, when he turns the wall, when God, when in the name of God, Moshe turns all the water into blood and the 10 plagues that hit the Egyptians, we know that for many of them, the source of Torah itself tells us that the sorcerers of Egypt were right up there with him, Moshe Rabbeinu, able to perform miracles as well. Seemingly, it's pretty clear cut that we believe in magic. Throughout the readings of the prophets, you see how the prophets over and over and over again admonish the Jewish nation for getting caught up in sorcery and magic. From this, one can only come to the conclusion that, yes, this is a reality, this is real. However, we have a little bit of an issue. See, based on experience, reality, that we deal with science, it makes us question, are these ideas really true? Can they really be real within our world, within our reality? Later on tonight, we might explore a possible solution to that, but a general idea that we all know is that scientifically and even logically, unless we have the ultimate tool, the ultimate barometer to see whether such a thing exists or not, we can't right away say that it doesn't exist because how would we know it doesn't exist if we don't have the proper tools to detect it? However, at the same time, we find somewhat of a difficulty because any student of the Rambam, Maimonides, knows that in the laws of Avodah in the 11th chapter, at the end of all the different types of witchcrafts that the Rambam, Maimonides, mentions, he says, all of these things are false and spurious. And he goes on to say, it's unbecoming of, of Jewish people who are exceedingly wise to be attracted by these absurdities. And he goes on, goes to town quoting different verses. And he says, anybody who believes in this are just among the foolish and the ignorant and are to be included among those, oh, those whose minds are not sound. But the wise and sound-minded people know that all these matters which the Torah disallowed are not matters of wisdom, but formless nonsense followed by senseless people for the sake of which they, are aband they abandoned every path of truth. Just pretty phenomenal, very powerful words coming from Maimonides. And many took issue with this because how can Maimonides go clearly against seemingly what is clearly stated in the Torah to a certain extent, even though he does explain it by saying that the Torah is just prohibiting nonsense, but at the same time, as we, as we will see, we will explore other sources where it is clear that such a concept is real. And another introductory question. If magic is real, and we see that the Torah is so harsh against witchcraft and magic and sorcery, to the point that we say that the one who practices it should be put to death. To death. If that's the case, why do we celebrate a miracle? Why do we Look at it as an advantage when you have a sage that is able to perform a miracle. If that's the case, what is the difference between magic, black magic, witchcraft, and a miracle? So let us, let us start with the mechanism of 
and understand how magic and sorcery actually work. So as we know, there's always much more than that which meets the eye. Just from a scientific point of view, we see certain things that work a certain way, we bring them into a lab and we understand that there's an entire world that we're not seeing. A world of molecules, a world, a world of atoms, a world that cannot be sensed with the naked eye. And the truth is, as we know, the Torah tells us that the world is not just a physical entity on its own. There are spiritual forces and energies that bring the world into being and keep the world moving, keep the world running and working. And it's that spiritual interface between the world and God. As Nachmanis explains, that the concept of magic is to manipulate these spiritual forces behind everything that exists and influence a particular outcome or an insight into the future by manipulating these spiritual forces. And just like we can manipulate physical forces, we can manipulate energies. So there are those who are able to tap into and manipulate the spiritual forces. And that is what's known as witchcraft or sorcery or magic. Now, how does one really tap into these sources? I'm obviously not going, I don't know that true, the ultimate idea and the ultimate way how to do it, but the mechanism behind it is as follows. There are generally two paths. One path is by using the names embedded with every one of these spiritual forces. You see, these spiritual forces are angels. These spiritual forces are spiritual concepts that all have names, rules, and mechanisms. By using these names, one is able to manipulate the forces who work in their favor. Now, how would one know these names? So the, our sages tell us that Adam and Chavo, the first two human beings, knew all of these names when they were in the Garden of Eden. And when they left the Garden of Eden, they took them out with them. People, they taught, they taught these names to their children. People knew about these names, but people were respectful of the fact that God created a universe, created these systems in place, these spiritual entities and these spiritual systems in place, and therefore did not use or abuse them. However, not too long after, about three generations, the third generation after Adam, during the generation of Shays, people started to manipulate these systems. And that's when idolatry really hit the scene. That's when people used to start instead of turning to God, would turn to these spiritual systems and bypass, so to say, the system of God. Another source for this magic is, as we know, there were two angels, Aza and Azael, who, who questioned God for creating man because of all of human beings, all of the failures of human beings, starting from the sin of the tree of knowledge and over and over and over again, human failure. So God said, you want to see what it's like? And God sent them down to this world to test them. And the more they failed, the more human and physical they became. However, at the same time, they remained extremely large, like giants, and extremely knowledgeable of the spiritual worlds, until the point that they started to teach people these names. And this is one of the reasons why the generation before the flood had absolutely no fear of the flood coming. Because they said, listen, a flood is coming? There's nothing for us to fear. We know the names for all the spiritual entities out there. So we can control the weather. We can control 
the outcomes of what the world will bring. There's nothing that any that God can bring against us. And in the truth, and truth is, God did not take away that ability to use the names and manipulate. All God did was change the names so they no longer knew them. And this way they were not able to manipulate and the flood happened and destroyed them. Several generations later, the generation of the tower, they tried doing the same thing once again. So what did God do? God changed their language. Because according to Nachmanides, this idea of being able to manipulate the spiritual entities, just like we can manipulate physical entities, is part of the balance of good and evil that exists in this world. As King Solomon says, God makes the world in a very balanced way, where good and evil will always be balanced. Wherever you can do something powerful for the good, there will always be that power for the evil. Because ultimately, it's about human choice. Free choice, that is. And that's why there's always that ability to manipulate the spirituality. A second mechanism of how these miracles and this magic works is via demons. And that is when the person will connect with a demon, when a person will strike up a deal with a demon, or a person, so to say, feeds the demon. And that's why we will find that so much of these of, of, the, of these um, magic, these uh, these magical potions and these deals, so to say, these mechanisms are connected with incense and blood. Incense, which is blood and smoke, sorry, which is smoke and fire, blood, which has that steam on top of it, especially fresh blood. And that is the concept that we spoke last week. The demons are made up of fire, which is energy, and wind, which is gas. But you have these ideas in the life force and blood and in the smoke of a flame. And that's, so to say, how the demons eat. And with a few other ideas of how to connect with the demons, but we're not going to get into that right now. And by using the demons' spiritual negative powers, a person is able to manipulate nature or manipulate the spiritual entities, which ultimately run and define the way our world works. Now, if that's the case, why is the Torah so against this manipulation? If it's a part of nature, if it's a part of creation, it's the way Hashem created the world, why is the Torah so against it? So there's a few concepts here. Many of the commentaries point out that all these forms of magic are really just forms of idolatry. And this really helps us understand the concept of idolatry. You see, to most of us straight-thinking people, idolatry seems like the most ridiculous concept that could be. You're going to bow down to a rock or to a piece of wood and you're going to serve it? Like the classic scene from the when Avram was young, when he, had, when he destroyed all of his father's idols, and he says, no, one of the idols destroyed the other one. And his father says, but idols can't move. If that's the case, so why would anybody serve an idol in the first place? Not, so, not only that, unfortunately, so many of our ancestors way back when did. And so much of the world was steeped in idolatry. What was going on? But based on this idea that we can understand that they weren't just serving these forms and images, these physical ideas. They were serving a spiritual entity, a spiritual idea, and they were actually able to manipulate it. And it actually worked out in their favor a lot of the time. 
So they weren't just mindlessly bowing down to our rock. They were actually trying to accomplish and manipulate some spiritual energies. The second issue with this manipulation is the damage that it causes. Imagine everybody just doing whatever they want, however they want against each other. We know how people are when they use power and they, mis they misuse it and abuse it. And the third and ultimate idea is as the general name in Hebrew for magic is Kishuf. And as the Talmud tells us that Kishuf comes from the term Machishim Pamalya Shalmaila, which means to deny the heavenly system, to deny the system that God created and to deny the plan of God in the world. Because ultimately, anybody practicing sorcery, witchcraft, or magic is trying to bypass the system that God created and saying, I know better or I have other selfish interests and I need my own outcome. And we can understand easily how evil that is. Now we can appreciate the difference between a miracle that we celebrate versus witchcraft and sorcery. You see, a miracle that we celebrate generally is performed by somebody who does, takes absolutely no credit and it's always God. Look in the Torah, by all the 10 plagues, by all the miracles that Moshe Rabbeinu performs, never once does he take credit for a single thing. He always says in the name of God. Because a miracle is all about showing that there is a God that runs this world and this world is not a chaotic, ownerless place. But rather, there is a God that runs this world and a God that's intimately involved with this world at all times. And a miracle that happens is there to show us and remind us that, just in case we have forgotten. However, when it comes to black magic, when it comes to sorcery, it's all about trying to bypass the system of God trying to get around it for our own selfish interests, trying to control with corruptive power, using evil sources known as the Sitra Afro, the other side, or the Kaya Hatuma, the power of impurity. And that's why it is so bad. It denies God, it denies that there is a ruler and a creator of this universe. And this is the idea that just because something is spiritual doesn't make it holy. You can have very corrupt, unholy spirituality, like the manipulation of these spiritual forces. Spirituality does not always equal holy. And holy does not always equal spiritual. The idea of something being holy and important and therefore important is that it is the will of God. If it is not, no matter how spiritual it is, it is completely irrelevant and unholy. Now, does that mean that the power of miracles, the power of good, is just as, sorry, is, does that mean that the power of bad and the power of magic and witchcraft is just as powerful as the, powerful, as the power of miracles and good? The answer straight up is no, absolutely not. The idea is just because the origin itself, we said that this power for spiritual manipulation is not a direct product of creation. Rather, it's a consequence. It's something that's only there to test us. It's something that's there only to keep a particular type of balance within the world of good and evil. And therefore, it in itself is essentially false. And that is why, in the face of holiness, 
it has no power. And even at the time when it is being used, it will not endure, it will not last for very long. And thirdly, it can never create something that isn't already there. Now, at this point, we will explore a few different types of magic and witchcraft that are actually specified clearly in the Torah with some stories and rules, rules and regulations, so to say, as to how they work. So the first one is known as koisim. The koisim is either magic or wizardry, and the general idea of it is to see into the future. The general tools that are used when it comes to koisim, and these are based on biblical sources, are either a stick, a mirror, or a lantern. We actually see all three of these being used in the same story when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, who actually destroyed the first base Hamikdash over two and a half, three thousand years ago. And when it says that when he came to a particular crossroad, as he was conquering country after country, he came to a fork in the road. He wasn't sure which way to go. It says that he checked with his stick. He checked with the mirror and he checked using the light of a lantern. He checked the liver of an animal. And like this, he got his directions. He knew exactly where to go. And the same thing we find in the Torah itself, that when Yaakov is leaving his, Jacob, our forefather, is leaving his father-in-law, Lovin's house. So his wife, Rachel, goes ahead and she steals something from her father. Eventually, her father comes looking for it. What does she steal? Something called trophim. What were these? These were some kind of figures that Lovin used to use. By looking into them, he was able to see into the future. And Rachel wanted to take them so that her father would not find out that they left and would not know where they are going. Now, in order to bring these powers, and this is a general rule, not just for the Kaisen, but being that the Kaisen was the first one, in order to bring on these powers of unholiness or to connect with these demons, it's necessary for the individual to lose sense of their reality, sense of right and wrong, and kind of to lose a form of conscious awareness. And in order to do that, there would be different methods like screaming, dancing, drumming, wild movements and the like. And this would help the person get in touch with these unholy, very dangerous spirits. Another form of this was called the Me'ainin. The Me'ainin is known as astrology or a, sooth a soothsayer. And that is somebody who would look into the celestial bodies the stars, the constellations, the zodiac. And like this, come up with, this is a good time, it's going to be a bad time. Or whatever form of conclusion that they would come to, they would read into it and say, such and such is going to happen, such and such is not going to happen. You should go for this business deal. You shouldn't do this business deal. All about looking towards the future. Now, is there something real to this? It definitely is. We know that there's a concept called a mazel. The Gemara tells us, the Gemara in Tractate Shabbos says that if somebody's born on a particular day of the week, 
based on their star sign, based on their zodiac, based on their mazel, they will pre be predisposed to certain characteristics, certain character, and, and certain attractions. But now, does this mean that somebody is stuck with it? We're going to discuss that in a moment. But we see the idea that a mazel is real. The point that's what when something good happens, we tell somebody mazel tov. What does the word mazel mean? Literally, it means to drip. And the idea is we're referring to that spiritual power and energy, that force behind creation, that it should drip and come into creation, it should come into actuality, and it should be good for the person. Now, what's wrong with this? So there's a fundamental issue here, and that is, as we read in this week's Torah portion, actually, that God tells Abram, God says, come out of your tent with me and let's count the stars, and let's look up at the stars. Rashi brings from the Talmud that what God was telling Abram was, say which means get out of your astrology and go away from astrology and the ways of the astrologers. He says, don't listen to their readings because they cannot confine you. They cannot define you. Or like the Gemara says, that a mazel has no power over a Jew. And why is that? So firstly, the astrologer can have a false reading, as we find several times. Firstly, by the Egyptian astrologers, they told Hare that a boy will be born to the Jewish nation, but we know that he will be punished by water. So as soon as, and they thought, so let's throw all the Jewish baby boys into the water. As soon as Moshe Rabbeinu was put his he was placed into the water by his mother in a basket. In their readings, this person was in the water. The savior of the Jewish people was in the water and because of that, it was no longer a threat. What they didn't realize is that they weren't reading about his body being in the water. They were seeing that 40 year, at the end of 40 years in the desert when Moshe Rabbeinu would hit the rock because of the story of water, the water of strife, that would cause Moshe Rabbeinu to die in the desert, not the water of the Egyptians. Another false reading they had is that when the Jewish people wanted to go to the desert, the astrologers said, let them go. We see a star sign that they will die because they saw signs of blood of the Jews being in the desert. So they understood that that meant that the Jewish people would die in the desert. What they didn't realize was that their reading was not that the Jewish nation would die in the desert, Rather, that there would be a performance of brismila, the blood that they saw with the blood of brismila. Once again, another false reading. In regards to what the Gemara says about the zodiac and the different dispositions a person will be born with. So one of them, it actually says that if a person is born on a particular day, the person will be very bloodthirsty. So does that mean that the person is predisposed to becoming a murderer? The Gemara says, no, let them become a shaykhit, a ritual slaughterer. Let them become a mile. It doesn't have to work that way. So once again, don't go looking after these star signs because there are false readings. How do you know what you're even seeing? And ultimately, the issue with the star signs is you are never boxed in as a Jew, as a person, you are never stuck 
even if that's what the star signs are, are lining up to read. And even if that's what the astrologer sees, because we know ultimately Hashem can change that. When a person changes themselves, when a person betters their way, we know that Hashem changes things. As King Chizkiyo, who was supposed to die because, of a, because he chose not to have children, and he was able to change that, even though the prophet saw that he would die. As well as Avram Avinu, according to the star signs, there was no way Avram was supposed to have any children. But look, Avram has Yitzchak, who has Yaakov, and has the rest of the Jewish nation. And therefore, we see that the, that's one of the fundamental issues with the idea of looking into the future. Now, the Menachish, the next type of sorcery. Menachish is known as divination. It's when a person looks into different things that take place in front of them and different readings for the future. Again, seeking knowledge of the future based on what happens or passes in front of them. One of ex a few examples are like if a fox passes, it means that it's going to be bad. Or if a person sees a black cat cross their way, it will be bad. Or if a person says, bread fell from my mouth today, so I will not do business today. Or if a person's stick falls and he says, I will not go out on my journey today because my stick fell, representing that my journey will be bad. All these types of omens and whatnot are no good. As well, within the category of divination, there's something called orthonomacy. Or, yeah, ornitho ornithomacy, which is divination through animals. And that is being able to talk to the animals, listen to animals. Unlike that, get insight into what's taking place behind the scenes in heaven, insight into the future. As the Gemara tells us, Shlaima HaMelech had this special ability to be able to speak to the animals, speak to the birds, and find out different things. As Shlaima HaMelech says in Ecclesiastes, that it is the bird that will carry the word and the winged creature that will tell over whatever it is that you say, and therefore be careful with your words. But this is refers to something much greater, and that's the idea of the secrets that birds can carry, otherwise known as the art of tiaran, which is an Aramaic word for the bird known as the raven. Another form of this sorcery is mechashif. Like we mentioned before, it's a general term for sorcery or the practice of magic. And like we said, its name itself means the denial of the heavenly court or the heavenly system, ultimately denying God and the system that God created. Now, this idea of sorcerers, like we said before, we find an idea of sorcerers we said before that we find in the Torah itself, and that is the sorcerers of the Egyptians. And as we know, the Gemara tells us that, these that the Egyptians were steeped in sorcery. They were very talented magicians, actually. And we know that when Moshe Rabbeinu performed each miracle, when he turned his staff into a snake, they responded in kind. When he turned blood, water into blood, they responded in kind. And the same thing is with frogs. Until they came to the point of the lice, they could not perform this miracle. One of the reasons given why is because the lice is smaller than the smallest bone in the human body. And sorcery and demons cannot rule over anything smaller than the smallest bone of the human body, representing the concept that creation is only in the hands of God, not in the hands of any supernatural, spiritual powers. Another area we find sorcery in Parshas, 
Balak. We know that there is a sorcerer and prophet, not a Jew. His name is Bilam. And during the war with the Jewish people and Midian, the Bnei Yisrael and Midian, it says that the kings of Midian and the other nations who were fighting against the Jews were flying. And while in flight, they were able to take advantage of the Jewish people. So what happens next is Pinchas, the son of Aaron Hakayim, comes out wearing the tzitz. The tzitz was a, a headplate with God's name on it that the, only the high priest would wear. And Pinchas came out wearing it. And as Pinchas le elevated, levitated above them, they no longer had the power in the face of holiness. All of these kings fell, and the Jews eventually ended that war. You see, because in the face of holiness, unholiness, no matter how powerful it is, is absolutely nothing. Another interesting measure tells us that there were two Egyptians who were extremely powerful sorcerers, that at the time as the sea came crashing down on the Egyptians, after Moshe Rabbeinu splits the sea, the Jewish people are out and the sea comes crashing down on the Egyptians. Many Egyptians tried running away using sorcery. But what happened was the sea started to chase these Egyptians. However, there were two Egyptians who were able to outrun the sea. And that was Yaifni and Mamre. And it says in the Medrash that they flew to the heavens. And they kind of were waiting there to see how things would play out. When the angels, Michal and Gavriel, saw what was going on, they screamed to God and said, how is this possible? And God says, do as you please. And they take these two angels, sorry, they take these two sorcerers, Yaifni and Mamre, and they bring them back down. And that's what we say in the Az Yashur, that we praise God specifically for drowning these two sorcerers. Another area is we find that in the war against Amalek, when King Saul is commanded to wipe out Amalek, he is told, don't even leave their animals alive. Slaughter, kill their animals. Ultimately, Shaul fails. And that was one of his greatest failures because he wanted to bring some animals as a sacrifice. Why was he commanded to kill the animals? And Medrash tells us because the nation of Amalek were very powerful sorcerers and they were able to turn themselves into animals and therefore hiding. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. There were a few people in the nation of Amalek who turned themselves into animals and guess who their offspring was? None other than Haman. So it is thanks to the fact that Shaul slipped up in this case that we have the story of Purim. Haman was a, was a descendant of one of these who turned themselves into an animal. Now, does that mean that the sorcerer has a power to turn someone into an animal? In truth, not. Like we said before, one of the pitfalls of sorcery, of magic, is that it doesn't, cannot create and it doesn't last. The idea of turning into an animal was just that it looks like an animal, but it is not actually an animal. Another example of these ideas was that in the times about 200 years, 200, in the year 200 or so before Common Era, one of the leaders of the Jewish nation, his name was Shimon ben Shatach. Shimon ben Shatach always thought to himself that if I become the leader of the Jewish nation, I will destroy all the witches. And as soon as he was appointed as the leader of the Jewish nation at that time, 
he was. He went, he was true to his word and he destroyed all the witches that he knew of. Until one day, one of his students came and he said that he was told that Shimon ben Shatak will be punished. And Shimon said, why? He says, because you didn't fulfill your promise of destroying the witches. Now the student wasn't sure Shimon would believe him. But Shimon right away said, I know you are, what you say is true because I never verbalized that promise. I only thought of it. He says, if that's the case, where are they? So he told him that there's a particular cave where they hide and that there are still 80 witches there. So Shimon called together 80 of his students. It was a rainy day. He tells them, take fresh clothing and put them in barrels and walk with me. They walked carrying this fresh clothing through the rain in the barrels to keep them dry. And he tells them, when I whistle once, put on the new clothing. When I whistle twice, come to the entrance of the cave. He went and knocked on the cave and they said, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm a sorcerer just like you. And I'm here to teach you and I'm here to learn from you. So they said, if that's the case, let's all show off our magical powers. So one witch with her magic brought bread forth, another with her magic powers cooked a meal, another with her magic power brought out wine. And they said to him, what is your magic powers? So he said, with my magic powers, I will produce 80 men. And he whistled once and they got dressed. He whistled the second time. And these 80 students came and he told them before, each one of you walk over to one of these witches and lift them off the ground. So these 80 men came flowing in. These witches were very excited. And as each one got lifted off the ground, he had them carry them out of the cave and he hanged all 80 of these witches on the same day. And that's because when their feet are not on the ground, the Talmud tells us they have no power because the feet being on the ground represents the powers of unholiness. And as long as they are not attached to that unholiness, there is nothing that they can do. Another story on this vein goes with Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa, who lived in a similar time period. There was a particular witch who used to take the dirt from under the, underneath the feet of Rabbi Hanina to try to do witchcraft, voodoo. And Rabbi Hanina could care less. So somebody asked him, says, why, do you, why don't you care? Why are you not worried? To which he answered, Ein oid milvade. There is nobody but God. There is no power but holiness. There is nothing to fear. Just with, when it comes to the nature of sorcery and witchcraft, an interesting story, Zairi, one of the sages of the Talmud, he bought a donkey. He didn't know, but it was made out of magic. He brought his donkey, he was riding the donkey. He brought it to water. As soon as it drank from the water, the donkey turned back into the log that it was created from, the log that it was magically appeared from. And that's because water represents the idea of pureness and holiness, purity and holiness. And as soon as it came into contact with it, it can no longer last, and the spell was off. Another story, when Rav witnessed a camel being chopped up by a magician, which he snapped his fingers and turned it back into a full animal. So his teacher told him, did you see any blood afterwards? And he told him, no, he says that wasn't anything. He says all that was were demons who can move a lot faster than you can, stealing an animal from one place and bringing it to another 
playing with your eyes. They didn't change anything. They didn't bring anything back to life. It was just about you not being able to see what was actually happening. Another story with three great sages, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Akiva, who all lived during, during and post-destruction the second Beis HaMikdash. They once went to a bathhouse in Ashkelon. Sorry, not in Ashkelon, in the south of Eretz Yisrael. And there was a particular sorcerer, wizard that was there, a heretic, who cast a spell on them that they cannot leave the bathhouse, to which they cast a spell back on him that he would become the door of the bathhouse. And every time anybody came in or out, he was getting hit and whacked and hit and whacked. So he says to them, he starts pleading with them, release me of my spell. So they said, release us. To which they both released each other, which is, just gives you insight that the rabbis generally stayed away from even using their powers when it came to these ideas, because ultimately to manipulate and play around for no reason is inappropriate, even when we're talking about holiness. And this heretic said, that's it you guys had, you guys are weak. So they said to him, sure, show us what you have. So he says, come with me to the river. And he says, I will split this river, just like Maisha, your teacher, split the sea. And with his magical powers, he split the river. And he said, you see? So they said to him, ah, but the Jewish people walked through the river. So he says, okay. And he goes and he stands in the middle of the river. And it was at that point that Rabbi Lezard, using the name of God, makes the angel in charge of the river come crashing down and swallowing up this sorcerer. Because once again, in the face of holiness, unholiness has absolutely no power. I think that's enough in the area of witchcraft for now, at least regarding kitchen. Another form of these ideas is called chayver chaver, which means one who connects things. And that's the idea of an enchanter, somebody who uses incantations either by mouth or by article, using words or names, like we mentioned before, to control these spiritual energies and these spiritual forces. And one idea is we find that the Medrash tells us, our sages tell us that when the prophet Jeremiah was warning the Jewish people, do Teshuvah repent or destruction will come upon the Beis Hamikdash and Yerushalayim, what they said to him was, we don't need to do any repentance, nothing. Because if anybody tries to come mess with us, one says, I know the name of fire. Another says, I know the name of water. Another says, I know the name of steel. And we can protect the city, no problem. And he kept admonishing them and said, change your ways because that won't work for you. Because ultimately God did not allow them to use these, incant these incantations because it was an inappropriate time to be used. And God was making a point. Same thing as we find that Moshe Rabbeinu uses a special name of God to kill the Egyptian who was beating and abusing a Jew. The Talmud discusses many different types of incantations that are said over wounds to heal. The Talmud also discusses many different forms of amulets where different names of angels and different names of God are used to be written on parchment as ways of protection. Different amulets which are worn to the point that many understood mezuzahs and tefillin to be amulets, hence the name phylacteries for tefillin, which is a type of an amulet. 
but as Maimonides writes very harshly against those who misuse and abuse Tefillin and Mezuzahs as amulets, because ultimately we know that that is a corruption of spirituality, because ultimately it is not God, sorry, ultimately it is not the Mezuzah or the Tefillin that protects a person. It is God who gives life and it is God who takes life. It is God who protects a person. And to try to manipulate by using unholy spirituality is a grave mistake. Just on this point, something a little bit more recent in this safer called Ginas Vradim. It's a response of different questions that were asked to a rabbi, Rabbi Avram Halevi, who lived in Egypt in the early 1600s. It was about a man who was filing for divorce against his wife because what happened was one day he ended up in the hospital. He ended up extremely sick, almost dead. And they found out from the maidservant that what was happening was that his wife would use a particular type of stone to try to cast a spell of love on him, which ended up, ended up almost killing him. I think that's grounds for divorce, maybe. <laughs> and many different similar stories. Just another type, something called Oiv Yidaini or Derish Alamesim, which is the idea of doing a seance, necromancy, consulting with the spirits and raising the dead. And these are all, these practices include using different types of grass or myrtle, skulls, bones, and incense, or starving oneself and going to a cemetery and getting visions and visits from spirits and souls. These ideas are mainly used to see into the future. We find that Shmuel Hanavi, sorry, sorry, we find that, that Shaul, we find that Shaul Hamalach, King Saul, after the passing of Shmuel Hanavi, and he's at war with the Plishtim, and he's not sure what to do. Usually he would ask the prophet, and the prophet would give him guidance. But at this point, the prophet passed away. God had closed all channels of communication with King Saul because already his time had come. And it was time for King David to take over. So King Shaul goes to find a witch. With her magical powers, brings up the soul. Shmuel Hanavi, Shmuel the prophet. And Shmuel tells him, God has left you. God wants you to give over the power, the rule to David HaMelech. And that's the only way the Jews will succeed moving forward. Was King Shaul, it was King Saul on the wrong? Some say yes, some say no. Essentially, the entire Jewish nation's lives were outlined. They were at war. Or some say to call it Sadiq, according to the Zoyar, is not prohibited. One other idea is something called Hashbo'as Hashem, which means putting an oath on a demon, which means getting the demon to do the work for you, which is actually brought in the Jewish code of law that one is allowed to, make an, to put an oath on a demon in order to find out who the thief was, in order to find out particular information of what happened. We need to figure out, you don't have the proper detectives, you don't have video cameras, you ask the demon, the demon saw it all. Well, like the story in the Gemara tells us that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was once traveling to go to speak to the Roman emperor who had put harsh decrees against the Jewish people saying that they could not keep Shabbos, they could not circumcise their children, and they could not keep the laws of family purity. And on the way to go, speak, beseech this Roman emperor and ask him to take away the decree. He's approached by a demon known as Ben Tamalian. And he says, my forefather Abraham got visited by three angels and I get visited by a demon. He says, what do you want from me? 
these demons says, I would like to help you. And he says, all right, come along for the journey. He says, as soon as they got to the emperor, the demon took possession of the emperor's daughter. Nobody was able to help her. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, I will help you if you take away these decrees. The emperor agreed. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, Tamalian, come out, Tamalian, come out. And the daughter returned to herself. But what we see overall that the rabbis were able to use all of these powers, just like those of the negative, but the rabbis refrained to whatever possible. But what we do see is that in the face of spirit, in the, in the face of holiness, unholiness has absolutely, that which is impure, has absolutely no power over holiness because these powers do not last. These powers essentially are weak and feeble. However, they are dangerous. But who is the most susceptible to it? Those who play in the waters of unholiness, of impurity, those who turn away from truth, those who are confused from what is right and what is wrong, those who have a distorted reality of what is real and what is fake, what is holy and what is unholy, and those who bring it upon themselves. Ultimately, like Ali Wiesel once said, Ali Wiesel used to, or used to say that the Nazis during the Holocaust were possessed. And he was once objected by a student of his, she was actually a granddaughter of a German officer. And she says, how can you say they were possessed? That takes away all ownership and responsibility from them. To which Wiesel responded, he says, no, you see, in Judaism, we don't look at demons and these supernatural forces as something which gives a person the right to do whatever they want and a lack of responsibility. On the contrary, he says, it's our decisions that allow these forces to take over us. It is our decisions that give them their power. And he says, the Nazis made decisions. The Nazis made choices at a point it was out of their control, but they are definitely responsible for everything because they could never have gotten there without making those choices. And that's why ultimately what is scarier and more powerful than any demonic or evil force out there is human choice because ultimately it is the human being that has the most power and it is our choices that define that. Now, what about today? Are these powers still around? Are these demons still around? Are these supernatural forces? What's going on over here? So the Talmud tells us that in the times of the beginning of the second base of Mikdash, the rabbis realized that the natural draw and the attraction to idol worship was too strong for people to handle. They saw an opportune moment and they slaughtered the inclination to serve idols. And the Gemara tells us that at the same time, another very interesting episode happened, and that is that the last of the prophets, Hagi, Zechariah, and Malachi, passed away. What's the connection between the two? The idea is very simple. Whenever there's an extreme positive, holy, spiritual energy in the world, like prophecy, prophecy was rampant in the times when the Jews were in the desert, and the times when the Jews had the first Besa Mikdash. There were thousands upon thousands of prophets. People would experience prophecy normally. 
had regular people who were able to experience prophecy. But at the same time, there had to be that counterbalance of an unholy supernatural spiritual power in the world. And that was idol worship, witchcraft, sorcery. And they were both extremely powerful. When the sages took care of business in the beginning of the second base of Mikdash, the men of the great assembly, 120, called this supernatural power to court and slaughtered it, which means that they took it out of this world. They took it out of access for most people. At the same time, that positive spiritual energy was also taken away, and that's why prophecy stopped. Now, does that mean that the spiritual energy on both sides was completely taken out? The answer is no. There's always going to be that balance of as says, there's always going to be that balance of good and evil. But the idea is it's a lot less accessible in certain places of the world, even until today, these concepts are still practiced. But as we see, as the generations went on, ever since the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, people became a lot less in touch with these powers, both for the good and for the bad, both on the positive side and the unholy negative side. However, that is not what we are meant to be obsessing about. As the Torah tells us that the greatest issue with all of these is tamim tia im Hashem a person has to serve God wholeheartedly. We shouldn't be looking to manipulate things for a particular outcome, and we shouldn't be looking into the future to try to figure out what will be. We are meant to be trusting in God. We are meant to be following the ways of God. All of these ideas and systems completely undermine this concept of trusting and believing in God. And that's why they are so corrupt. Now, do they still exist nowadays? Not nearly to the same extent as they did once upon a time. But as the Alter Rebbe, as I once heard in the name of the Alter Rebbe, that these spiritual energies were transformed from sorcery and demonic powers to powers like money, to powers like corruption, to powers like vanity. And that's something that we still struggle with today. We have these demons and these, so to say, magical attractions to things. How they work, we don't know. But we know as a society, as a whole, we're attracted to these things. These things play with us. We struggle with the demons of anger, of jealousy, distorted reality. Ultimately, just like in the case of magic, it's about bringing a clear reality back to a person, bringing holiness back into a person's life and focusing on trusting in God and understanding God. That's what the ultimate power, that's where the ultimate power lays. And that's what a Jew was meant to be occupying themselves with. Not to be occupying myself. How do I get rid of magic? How do I deal with any of these ideas? They're nothing in the face of spirituality, of holiness. Nothing in the face of God and the oneness of God. In Oid Mavade, as we said before. I'd like to just share with you a quick clip of somebody who asked the Rebbe about this concept. Dove Bir Klein is a veteran educator and principal of Talmud Torah Chinuch Noorim in Salford, England. In the early 1970s, after returning from a trip to Indonesia, he enrolled in a Chabad yeshiva to learn more about his Jewish heritage and had an audience with the Rebbe. When I was in Southeast Asia, I was in a lot of primitive parts of the country. And 
where there was a lot of, where where they practiced black magic and very unusual magical rituals and dances and i'd heard stories of travelers who who had spells cast upon them by people in in Sumatra and uh, i was a little bit concerned that maybe somebody had cast a spell on me or something so i'd asked the rebbe whether you know I should be worried about the dangers of black magic. So the Rebbe said like this, the Rebbe said that neither black magic nor white magic can have a permanent effect upon anybody. And the Rebbe said, you know, it's very, very important for you to learn Shulchan Aruch. I thought maybe that uh, he was saying that if a person who leads a, a, a proper Jewish life doesn't have to worry about these kind of things. One of the questions I did You have it right there, black and white, from the Rebbe, that beautiful directive and that concept of what truly has control. <clears throat> so I bless us all that we continue to commit our lives to believing in Hashem more, working with Hashem more, learning more Torah, becoming Jews who are truly committed to Hashem because ultimately that is the most powerful thing a person can have is when they connect with the truly infinite creator. Hashem.